Church at the Red Door. Welcome. Was that just me? Oops, we got a little feedback there. Was that just me or was it a little cool this morning? I I thought I had accidentally set my thermostat down to about 54 last night and I got up this morning. Uh, Before we get rolling here, let's pray. Father, we we are so grateful, so grateful to be here, starting to see just a few of our... uh, our fair-weathered friends uh, coming back, streaming in, and, and uh, many still on live stream. We welcome them this morning, Lord. We, but most of all, we welcome you, and we welcome the presence of your Spirit. Lord, what we're asking for you to do today is something extraordinary, something supernatural, that you would come down uh, f- uh, from heaven, which is not out in the middle of nowhere, but just another dimension, and help us engage with this unseen realm that Jesus proclaimed was, in fact, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And help us, for those who don't know you, Lord, that they would be able to sense your presence and maybe even enter that that new kingdom today. And for those of you who are, that we would be able to put aside all the other distractions of life and all the issues that we all have. We're all going through something, somewhere, tangentially, somewhere, somebody close to us is hurting if it's not us ourselves, Lord. So we need your power to engage us. We're here to meet with you. We're here to meet with your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> now, one quick thing, uh, one additional plug to what Pastor Paul did uh, on November 18th. We're going to be having this living desert thing. And you're all supposed to say, it's not the 18th, it's the 17th, right? So it's, <laughs> it's the 17th now. We've got this uh, gig that we've got, our welcome back Remember that Welcome Back Cotter movie? This is not Welcome Back Cotter. This is Welcome Back Church of the Red Door, welcoming many back, and then just kind of our get-together launch party. And let me tell you something. Constance and her team uh, needs more of her team. All right? So let me just say, we need, we, she needs some people that aren't just maybe just willing to show up and cut a cake or something that are actually getting engaged right now, starting today, and be part of this uh, extraordinary thing. If you've never been to uh, one of these special events, let me just tell you, you want to come. It, it blows my mind every time I come, and then I stand up and take credit for it all. And it's just amazing how that works. <clears throat> but these are amazing events, and it's going to be very special, and we're anticipating we can have up to 300 people. So Um, And we've sold out pretty much every event we've had, so it's going to be at the Living Desert. So everybody with me, but we we, we need some people, we need some team people that are ready to kind of roll up their sleeves and and help us push through to this November 17th event. All right? A shameless plug, of which I am not ashamed. All right, you ready to roll? Uh, We are going to continue our study this morning on something that I started September 1st and then, of course, was out the rest of September and then picked up last week, which is this this idea that there is a certain place in your own spiritual maturation that will necessitate you being involved in mission, and more specifically, the Great Commission. And that's where I want to start this morning. There's something that was actually uh, brought up in uh, Mark chapter 12, uh, and then we also see it as well in Matthew 22 and Luke 10. We see kind of different variations of this question that that this guy came up and said, look, Jesus, what's the greatest of all the commandments, and then Jesus gives what uh, theologians refer to as the great commandment. So let me just say, everything in the Great Commission is predicated on the great commandment. So if you have your Bibles, if you will, please, go to Mark chapter 12, and I believe it's starting in verse 28. Just an engagement. They had been trying to catch Jesus and some things, and it was all a big mess. And they were, well, if a guy gets married and he dies, and and then and then she marries his brother, and then and and he marries all that she marries all the brothers, and they keep dying. I mean, it's just a ridiculous thing. Uh, whose husband? Uh, will she have, who will be her husband in heaven? And Jesus just kind of skirts the issue. And in other words, in other words, there was already kind of a confrontational vibe that then sets up this verse in 28. <clears throat> One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and that's what they were arguing about, and recognizing they were, Jesus wasn't arguing, he was telling them the facts, and then they were arguing among themselves, recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? 
And then verse 29, Jesus answered, the foremost is, now this is interesting, a lot of people say, well, the commandment was, but he starts with Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's called the Shema, and Jews all over the world still will say the Shema each time, and he quotes the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And then he gets to what most people begin to quote is the great commandment. Now, Before I go to the great commandment, let me just stress that Jesus quoted the Shema. And how so? It started with there's one God, and that's been kind of our premise over the last few weeks of this point, that if there is only one God, then there is a necessity of accountability. If there's a multiplicity of gods and everybody has their God and it's just kind of what, your best take on it, kind of what we looked at last week as pluralism, if everybody kind of has their own take on it, then we're really not beholden to any one particular God. In fact, we're certainly not even accountable. But if there is one God, and the Bible's very clear that there's one God of heaven and earth, one creator, one one that, that then we're beholden to him. I mean, we'll be subject to him. And that's what we saw in Psalm 96, not only that. And one day we'll be judged by him. So that's the precedent. And then he goes on and finishes and says, here it is. And you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, with all your strength. And then the second one, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So let me just say the Great Commission is fully, fully based upon having achieved already the great commandment. Number one, there's one God. Number two, that we've got to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, if you love somebody, you're interested in their agenda. You can't love somebody and not be interested in what they're interested in. What is God interested in? He's interested in reaching the world. Jesus made that very clear in the Great Commission. And then equally as important, it's also important not only love God, but then out of that love for God will necessarily then flow these springs of water that Jesus talked about, will begin to flow out of you and you'll begin to have the capacity to love other people. Imagine this, to love other people as you love yourself. And so because of that, now we can talk about the Great Commission. But it's really based in the Great Commandment. You have to follow. If there's one God and there's one creator and there's one end to this whole narrative called life, if there's one story and there is, then it necessitates love, obedience, and, hey, God, what are you interested in? Hence now the second part of that, and now we're going to go to Matthew 28, and actually read the Great Commission. Many of you will know this by heart. It's been a driving force in my life, not from the beginning, not from the moment I accepted Christ. When I first came to Jesus, I was just interested in, uh, you know, being on the right side of the aisle here. I mean, I, I, I didn't really know what he wanted. I just knew he was powerful and that I believed he created me and I believed he had authority Uh, in the earth and in the universe. And when I came to believe that, I began to follow Jesus. But it took a while to have this become part of my DNA. But it has been certainly over the last 20 to 25 years. And I will tell you that it drives everything that I do in terms of my intention. Now, I've always got my flesh that will be drawing me away from this. But as a core ethos in terms of this church and in terms of me personally and it's our whole team. And just to let you know, we are a missional church. Why? Because Jesus said these words. You ready? Here in verse uh, 16, but the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. So this is after his resurrection. He says, you guys go ahead to Galilee and I'm going to meet you there. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's what happens when you see the one and true and only risen one, you bow down, you worship. You don't really understand maybe the fullness of what you're dealing with. But when you get in the presence of a power like that, you fall to your knees. And we'll see that in a minute, even in Joshua chapter 5. And And yet, some were doubtful. And again, you've heard me preach on this probably if you've been around at all. That's always encouraging to me that even after he was resurrected and after all the things that he had talked to them, they still didn't have the Holy Spirit. Pentecost had not yet come. And they were still doubtful that we need the Holy Spirit to help us get over our own doubts. And Jesus came up and, and he spoke to them and he said, 
Now, listen to these words. I know some of you will know this well. Some of you Bible people will know this well. But listen to the words even more specifically than maybe you ever have before. All authority. Now, think about this. All authority. All authority. Has been given to me both in heaven and on the earth. Therefore, go therefore, because that's true. This is what we've been seeing in Psalm 96. Ascribe to the Lord the greatness that's due his name. Because that's true, because I'm the boss of this whole deal. Therefore, sit in your room, be a hermit, go up into a monastery, get away from everything. Just, just, just you and me and your relationship with me. It's a personal thing. Just no. Therefore, because I have all authority, here's what I'm telling you to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Now, again, this is falling right in line with what the psalmist had seen a thousand years earlier, that it was going to be the whole earth that was going to glorify. This is not just a little Semitic tribes God uh, over and juxtaposed to all these other gods. No, this is the God. All the prophets had seen it, and they'd been talking about it for thousands of years. And now it was upon them, and Jesus has the audacity to say, <laughs> all authority. Not, I'm a really powerful guy, and I have some really interesting things to say. No, that's all true, too. All authority, and not only on earth, but in the unseen realm of the heavenlies. Now, they wouldn't have understood the heavenlies like we do, but now with the grandeur of even what they knew. Now, they were in awe of what they saw. They could look up into the sky and see thousands of stars, but they couldn't see on into deep space and see trillions of galaxies, potentially two trillion galaxies. They couldn't have seen that. And Jesus was claiming authority in all of those realms. Now, let me just be really clear. What did he tell us to do? He said, go, make disciples, and then baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then teach them to observe everything that I've been talking to you about over these last three and a half years. Now, we could, we could break that down and say, well, that was the responsibility of those 12, but then that ended at that point. Well, no, it didn't, of course. It's, they weren't able to reach everybody on the earth. It was necessarily going to be spiritual Amway, wasn't it? I mean, it was gonna, they were going to have to get distributors who were going to get distributors and get distributors and get distributors, and I have become a distributor. And I'll just tell you that it's the most fulfilling thing, it's the most glorious thing that you will ever, ever participate in. And that's kind of what we've been talking about. So is it, this, this is a megalomaniacal kind of attitude, isn't it? I mean, is Jesus a megalomaniac? I mean, the psychiatrists say the, the symptoms of this are this, that marked by delusions of grandeur and wealth and all this other kind of stuff. I mean... And, and then even more specifically, it's just an obsession with uh, doing extravagant and extraordinarily grand things. I mean, that's the definition of megalomania. I mean, this guy, Jesus, let's just clear it up. Jesus was nuts if this wasn't true. I mean, he was completely and utterly off his rocker unless he actually does have all authority in heaven and on earth. What are the implications of that? What are the natural implications of that? I mean, we've got to take very seriously what he said about reality, don't we? I mean, there, there is, but it's, it's easy for me. It's either he was nuts, he was a megalomaniac, or he actually has all this authority. Now, I want you to, if you have your Bibles, go back to Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5. Very uh, interesting encounter. Um, the children of Israel had gone through the wilderness 40 years, only two from the original group, not even Moses himself. He had died on Mount Nebo. Only two, Joshua and Caleb, had made it all the way through. And now that Joshua was going to lead this procession, they now cross. We actually did a little thing on the Stones of Remembrance, for those of you who were here, did a teaching on this a number of months back. They actually crossed the Jordan again, and then they camped at Gilgal. And which was, and then they were going to be right, they were right near Jericho. And we all know, and the walls came tumbling down, if you know anything about Bible stories. And this encounter happened right before the Jericho, what would become an invasion, or wasn't an invasion, or what was it? I mean, it was weird. I mean, it, it ended up being an invasion, but I mean, what, what are they going to do? 
And then this brief encounter, we're not even given a whole lot of commentary on it. Let me just say, let me set this up. Not all theologians agree whether or not this was a pre-incarnate Jesus, this Lord of hosts figure. We see kind of this, there's some mystery here. There's a, there in the Old Testament, the, the angel of the Lord or the Lord of hosts or, and that Lord is in the Hebrew, Adonai. Uh, who is this that Joshua is encountering? Some theologians will say, I really believe this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. Some not. Even if it was a powerful angel, this comes directly from God and is a direct representative of God himself. So Joshua chapter 5 here in verse 13. And I may not have given it to him. That's probably the case. As is the case with me, I think of something midweek and I, and I start to... Anyway, so uh, Joshua, let's go to Joshua here. And Joshua chapter 5. And we'll start here in verse 13. Okay, so here's this encounter. It's just a really interesting encounter. Now, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, now catch this, are you for us or are you for the other guys, our adversaries? That was an important question because he knew that he was powerful. We don't know exactly what Joshua understood about this this enigmatic figure that we have here. And he said, no, there's a response, no. And some of your Bibles, I think even in the NIV, said, uh, I'm for neither side. But the NASB that I teach out of says, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord, my Adonai, to say to a servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, if you'll remember back, that's exactly what happened at the burning bush, right? I mean, it was a holy place. Now, for me, I tend tend to be in the camp that thinks that this is a pre-incarnate Jesus, uh, and again, I don't have the time to go into it, but there are many places where people all of a sudden now, remember angels, if you bowed down before an angel, an angel would say, get up, what are you doing? Worship God and him only. But this particular angel or the angel of the host of the, of, of the of his head of his host, uh, this angel of the Lord, if this is in fact the same figure, uh, the place that you're standing is holy ground. Bow, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't pick him up. He said, no, this is holy ground. Now, what, what is the point here? What point am I making? I'm making the point that based upon the authority that he knew this figure is, even irrespective of what your position is, based upon the authority that this guy had, you could see the response, immediacy of the response of Joshua. He knew he had authority and he fell to the ground. Now, that's all we get. The story ends. Did he help him? Did he not help him? Why did he show up? Who, what, what, what's, what's the whole story? I also find it interesting, just as a sidebar note, that uh, who are you for, right? Who are you? Who are you for today in the NFL games? You know, <laughs> I'm for neither team. I, I mean, I've got I've got purposes and my sovereignty that far surpass your short-term ideas about wh- how things are going to go down. In other words, I he I think what he's doing is he's claiming to be really part of a whole nother dimension. We see that with Elisha and other things. Sometimes you see this picture and this glimpse on into the unseen realm. The point is, this guy represented or himself directly was the authority, God's authority. And Joshua immediately fell to the ground and realized that it was it was holy ground that he was standing on. Now that for me is powerful. Powerful. Because that's true, and we're going to have to now take that message to the ends of the earth to make disciples, to baptize people, to teach people. That's what we're doing this morning. I mean, it's all part of the Great Commission. To do that, we need to become more like Jesus. And this is the third point I wanted to make as it relates back to our Psalm 96 as we progress through. And it's simply this, to proclaim and promote the glorious message This new nation made of Jews and Gentiles, followers of Jesus, would need to share the same nature. That nature would closely resemble the nature of Jesus. In other words, we would need to mature and become healthy. Jesus was a picture, clearly, right? 
of perfect health. There's a guy named Alan Redpath, I think I've quoted him before. He was a great evangelist in the 20th century, early, early 20th century. I think he died in 1989. He makes a particular statement that I find particular, uh, provocative and right, right on. It says, God's delays are always infinitely more profitable than our haste. Let me tell you something. Are you a person that I've got to get this done, we've got to progress, we've got to go? His delays are much more important than our own haste. We are always in a fever to do something for God, aren't we? Well, some people are. I mean, it's like, I'm going to go out, I'm going to do stuff for God. And that's a good attitude to have. But they have also forgotten that the first thing God wants is that we should be something for him. Not just do something for him, but be something for him. And my friends, is this not true? This is a process, a long, arduous process that we must all go through. Now, in this, we're, now we're going to talk a little bit about habits and about how do you actually be transformed into the image of Jesus. I mean, it's the question that we should ask, right? What, what is the process? I was looking, uh, this was a number of, this was probably over a month that I actually started preparing this message. And I just came across, it's just a secular deal, right? This is just a, but it was, it was good. I don't know if it was a blog or something I came across on the internet. Some guy, I don't even know who he is, Michael Staywicky. And uh, he has five rules to make you successful in life. My point is not that these are, oh yeah, we all have to ascribe to this, because I'm listening to the Word. I mean, I want to know what the Bible says, but sometimes we figure out that the earth, the secular people, people maybe even independent of God, can come to the same recognition that the Bible tries to say. These are what we might call just kind of golden rules in life, and you don't have to necessarily have the Word to understand that habits make people. And there's five very specific things that he says, and they're all, they all have biblical foundations. So number one, your habits make you. Now listen to this. A guy named Jim Rohn says simply this, success, now for us, we're talking about success and becoming like Jesus, not just being able to drive a nicer car or go on more vacations. Success is nothing more than a few simple disciplines practiced every day. Now, that is thoroughly biblical. When you go back to the psalmist, he gets up every day. He, you know, you see that. He's seeking the Lord every day. When he goes to sleep at night, he's, he's worshiping. He's thinking about the Lord as, he, as he's there on his bed. And, and you see this over and over. You see the repetition uh, practices. Sometimes we don't do a whole lot ceremonial here, but once a month we do communion and we come together. There's like a ceremonial part, and then there's things that are involved in that and, and examining yourselves, but there's little daily things that you do habitually that make who you are. If you're success, I don't care if you're successful here today in whatever capacity, we can remove ourselves from the spiritual and just go into business, for instance. Your business succeeded because you practiced these little habitual things every single day. It became your core identity in your business or in your culture, and it either made it successful or it failed. And so, in my view, businesses. Uh, succeed or fail based upon the culture that is created, and that usually is the habits of the leader. It really is. And then everything tends to flow down through that. Now, there's some exceptions to that, but I'll tell you, that's pretty much true about uh, in regarding all businesses. And then number two, by the way, it says success and small disciplines that lead to those things. It's training, studying, pondering on a daily basis. Only if you have such preparatory habits can you achieve those huge things. Do you expect to be different? Do you expect to be like Jesus just because, well, some people chase this, and God will give you this. Some people chase conferences, you know, when they first come to Christ, and they want to go to every conference. They want to go to everything. They need a new spiritual experience. They need a new spiritual high. They need something that's going to, you know, enliven them, motivate them. They'll find, they'll find churches that really aren't even preaching the Word, that don't even get into the Bible, that are really more motivational talks, and they'll, and they'll cling to that. But let me just tell you, that always runs out. At the end of the day, those small practice disciplines will make or break you spiritually. How much time did you spend in the Word? I'm not here to grind on you. I'm not here to, to just to, to make this a, a horrific moment just because for you to feel bad about not spending time in the Word. But I'll just tell you, how much time did you spend in the Word each day? And that will, a year from now, two years, five years, it will 
I, I'll be able to tell. I'll just, I'll just put it that way. And I'm not even that good at, I mean, I'm pretty good at guessing weight, but uh, <laughs> like a circus act, you know. But I, I mean, I, it doesn't even take that much. I can just tell when somebody is a word person. I can just tell. I don't care how much they go to church. I can tell when somebody's a word person or somebody's a prayer person. I can just tell. Over time, you just, oh. I can sense maturation very quickly. That didn't mean I love you more or love you less. I can just sense it. And if I don't sense it, then it's our task, you know, and anytime you're in leadership and, and it would have the audacity to say you're in leadership. I mean, uh, in, in God's church that he's building, you have to have that kind of discernment. Number two, your habits can also break you as well. Now, catch this. I liked this a lot, and it's thoroughly biblical. Failure is simply a few errors in judgment repeated every day. Failure is just a few errors in judgment repeated every day. Men, just, just that momentary glance, that, that wayward look, you know, on the Internet, and then you find yourself drifting down some things that, you know, that you shouldn't drift into. And it's, it's just only a moment. I can just tell you. That momentary lapse in judgment repeated over and over and over will change your character. It will affect your marriage. It will affect your children. It will affect everything about you. Those little things practiced every day. Well, I can kind of get away with it. You know, I just kind of, it's not a big deal. It's like two minutes. It's like 30 seconds. It was like, I'm just telling you failure, failure in whatever area. And today we are talking about the spiritual realm of becoming like Jesus so that we can enter the Great Commission. Failure is simply a few errors in judgment repeated over and over and over and over. It's not the big grand collapsing failure, the, you know, the Harvey Weinstein kind of thing. It's not that, you know, inglorious conclusion. You know, people may never really know. It may never become public. It may never, but those little things define, will define who you are over time. It just will. Number three, change is team play. I mean, you say, man, this is absolute. We, I mean, we know this. You cannot succeed by yourself. It's hard to find a rich hermit. Now, they're, again, thinking from a, from a seen realm place, right? Can I just tell you, you cannot do this alone. If you struggle with alcoholism, you drink too much, you find great, 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 many have found great solace in AA, right? Why? Because you can't do it alone. That's all. AA is pretty much you just can't do it alone. And I'm telling you, the spiritual life and becoming like Jesus, you cannot do it alone. God won't even allow you to do it alone. He set up his church to force us to integrate and to rub elbows. And iron does sharpen iron. These are thoroughly biblical pictures. Isolation, Aaron Walker says, is the enemy of excellence. Let me say that again. Isolation is the enemy of excellence. If you want to fail, try to change yourself in a social void. It could not be more true, spiritually speaking. You want to become like Jesus? Get involved in Constance, on Constance's team. Get involved in something. Go out with our Coachella Valley Rescue Mission guys and go out and feed the poor. Do, do something. Get involved in a home group. Get involved. Do something. Come here. You're already here. So, I mean, you know, good. It's awesome. It's wonderful. Number four, know thyself. Know thyself. Sounds like we're back with the Greek philosophers, right? But Peter Drucker simply says, success is the no in the knowledge economy comes to those who know themselves, their strengths, their values, and how they best perform. The true success that means fulfillment in serving others to the best of your ability always comes to those who know themselves. In the past, you could be misplaced and prosper. Nowadays, it's impossible. Now, again, a secular perspective a secular perspective, but it's thoroughly biblical. To each has been given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you know Jesus, we are the body of Christ. We're not, we're living stones being built together into a temple. I mean, all the metaphors are consistent that we are a community. We are a called out people that are part of a community. And then finally, 
Be grateful and be positive. Now, let me tell you something. It just could not be more true. I mean, one of the things I hope you get when you come here on a Sunday morning, sometimes the Lord will, the word will do something and you'll be grieving because maybe you'll feel that you need to repent or change your mind about a certain thing. I mean, that's true too. But very often you're going to come here and I hope that you're going to walk out here and go, yeah, we win. I mean, this is the story is we, followers of Jesus, we will rule and reign with him one day. That's the end of the story. And we have the end of the story. We don't have to guess at the end of the story. But when the brain is positive, every possible outcome we know how to test for rises dramatically, according to Sean Acor. You've heard it correctly. Every single measurable outcome is better when you are positive. I, I just have nothing in life that makes me more positive than Jesus. Becoming like Jesus will make you more positive. It won't exempt you from challenges and frustrations and, and really some difficult roads at times. But it will make you positive. Even in the midst of it, what does the Bible say? Be thankful in all things. In all things. Tell him thanks. In other words, just be positive. Every single measurable outcome is better. Health, wealth, relationships, savings, fitness, performance. Again, a secular view here, but biblical foundations. Chances for promotion, sleep, net worth. You can continue the, the list ad infinitum. Scientists have not found a single exception. Everything, rewiring your brain into positivity is very simple. Every morning, write down three new things that you are grateful for. Sounds biblical, doesn't it? I mean, this, you know, wondering, is this guy a believer? I mean, all these, these five primary points. Now, I, I don't know about you, but um, <laughs> I'm not a huge Rolling Stones guy, but I'm aware of the Rolling Stones. Why? Because they have been ubiquitous for how many ever years, right? And so Mick Jagger had a heart attack. I don't know if some of you knew. He had a heart attack here not long ago. And I've always wondered, how is a guy so skinny? He has, he's, I mean, I, he, get, he still gets up on stage. I don't know how old he is. He's like 114 or something like that. <laughs> he still gets up on stage, and he has abs and all this other kind of stuff. And I just go, oh, man, who is, it? Who is this guy? And then he had a heart attack. I just thought it was always just this hard living, you know, that just kept him skinny because he was smoking and drinking and doing drugs. or something. I don't know what I thought. But it came out here not long ago that he runs like eight miles a day. A day. And he works out, does push-ups. He weighs like, he's a waif, man. He weighs like 85 pounds. <laughs> but he's got the midsection of an 18-year-old in his 70s. It's unbelievable. And I don't know why I was so shocked. Habits, practices, consistency. Eight miles a day? Come on, Mick. I mean, you know, just... I mean, that dancing around, I mean, it just, it's unbelievable to me. If the world knows, if Mick Jagger knows that he needs to exercise and eat right, if Mick Jagger knows that, would that not be true in the spiritual realm? Do we need to exercise, spiritually speaking, and eat right, spiritually speaking, we, we like to delude ourselves. My genes are just this way. I'm this and that. We do it in the physical realm. Trust me, if we do it in the physical realm, we'll do it in the spiritual realm. There's always a reason why you're not spending time in the Word or not spending time in the community of faith or practicing. Just some mistakes practiced every day will lead to failure. But inversely, isn't it true? Just spending some time. I, I know you've probably had this experience and... Uh, and I have. I'm just telling you as a pastor, I'm not pointing the finger at you. I am not. I mean, there are times where I just go, wow, I've just not spent enough quality time with the Lord this week. And there will be so many things pulling at my attention. I'm just thinking, this is ridiculous. And then I finally do, and I sit down, and I turn on some worship music, and I open my Bible, and I open my hands, and I say, Lord, just speak to me, and I'm just asking you for to engage me. And then it's, it takes just a few minutes, and I'm just like, why do I not do this all the time? Why am I not more consistent in this? And I'm a pastor. So let me just say, Little steps. It is a process. If Mick Jagger knows it, then we should know it as well. So if you have your Bibles again, turn to First Samuel chapter 3. How do we learn? 
If we want to become like Jesus, it's important to actually hear his voice. Now, we know that the, especially for new believers, the primary way to hear the Lord's voice when you first become a new believer, you are such a mixed bag. I'm still a mixed bag after 30 years of following Jesus, but especially for new believers, you're a mixed bag. You've got ideas run around your head that do not come into alignment with what God says about reality, and that's the part of the discipling and teaching part of the Great Commission that's such an integral part of making you and conforming you to become more like Jesus. It's just word-based. you got to eat the right stuff. But there was a story of Eli and his son. He had two sons, and they were actually priests, uh, Hophni and um, Phinehas, and they were a mess, and they were really off. And so God had already decided he was going to take them out and replace them with a young guy named Samuel. I won't go to the whole thing, but there was Hannah, and then she had her... Um, her husband, and she was just, she was barren, and then finally she said, if, Lord, if you'll just give me, if you'll just give me a son, I will dedicate him to you, and she did, and his name would become Samuel, but the very first encounter that he had with the voice of the Lord was in 1 Samuel chapter 3, and what happened is, is they came in, and this voice comes in the middle of the night, and it's like, you know, Samuel, Samuel, and, and, and he gets up and he goes and says, you know, what is it you want, Eli? And Eli says, I wasn't speaking, so he went, go back to sleep, went back to sleep, heard it again, came back, Eli, what do you want? Because he's, he's been dedicated to the temple. Now, the temple's not yet in Jerusalem, it's in Shiloh. So they're still outside of Jerusalem, so they're, they're in Shiloh, and he comes back in the three time, and Samuel goes, look, the Lord's trying to speak to you. And he does. He goes back. But then 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 7 says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, nor had the word of the Lord yet been revealed to him. Can I just tell you, he was already God's man. He was dedicated to God. Some of you are already God's men and women. But you don't yet know the voice of the Lord. You don't know his ways yet. Why? Because you haven't been immersed in this, and it is a process. That sounds like brainwashing to me. It is, with the washing of the water with the word, so that all the brainwashing you've been going through for all the years of your life will slowly begin to seep out, and you'll replace it with God's word, and in the process, you will become like Jesus and now be effective in the Great Commission. Sometimes you can do more damage in the Great Commission not having the nature of Jesus, and you can look back over church history and see that certainly was the case. Think about that. Again, as I alluded to last week, I just got back from Spain, and the Spanish Inquisitions and all the stuff went down. There were some people that were not yet walking in the nature of Jesus. And to this day, there are people in the 21st century that look back and read church history and go, well... That's the church, and I don't want anything to do with that because those are a bunch of hypocrites. And many of them were. They tried to participate in God's economy, God's great commission, and yet they were not like Jesus. So they took to human effort, and it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. So we need to become, again, like Jesus. It's like learning a language. It really is. I, I, you know, I have, uh, this started for me 30 years ago. I, I, I met a couple of guys that had their little collars up, you know, and they came in, and they were walking in, these little tiny glasses, and had their hair, hair swept back and all that, and I go, these guys look cool, and they were from Europe, and they came in, we started talking, and I was, uh, I was a golf pro uh, at La Quinta Hotel Golf Club there at the Mountain Course when it was in its glory days, and they came walking in, uh, we are looking for Jeffrey Cranford, and I said, well, hey, that's me, you know, and they had met somebody that knew me, and, you know, and one thing led to another, and it led to this long relationship, and, and I thought, and they had invited me, and I went over to Germany, and I did this uh, big gig for them, and then I started, met the head of BMW, I told you some of these, these stories, and I started playing the BMW on the European tour a little bit, and they gave me a sponsor's exemption, and, and this relationship started, and I figured out the other day, I was talking to Laura, I said, I don't know how many times I've been overseas, and I was just looking at my passport, which is now nine years old, so I've got to have to restate it at 10 years, right, I'm looking at it at nine years, I've got 33 overseas, tra overseas trips in the last nine years. So I figured the last 30 years, I've, at minimum 60 times, I've been overseas. Had I had any clue? See, I started right when I met these guys. I said, well, I want to learn German. And I got this German book and this thing, and I, and I, had, and I started down the process. And I was like, man, this is, this is impossible. This is like so, this language is so hard. 
And I came back, and I'll never forget, there was a juncture there that changed, really kind of changed. And I went, and they said, well, Jeffrey, why would you need to learn German? This is ridiculous because we all speak English. And I go, oh, that's a great idea. And I, and I put that thing back under my bed, you know, and then all this kind of thing. Now you got to realize thousands and thousands of hours of being with these people through the years. And I so regret not just having to practice those little daily habits if I had any clue, 30 years of Israel, and I just got back. And, you know, I, I feel like an outsider because when something gets fun and exciting and there's a group, they all go to Germany. And I sit there and go. And I feel it's, it's ridiculous. I've been around this. It would have been so easy if I had just made some small, incremental, habitual things that I had done every day, get up, just do. I mean, if I had just done 15 minutes of German every day, I'd been speaking it so fluently I mean, wow, Gesundheit. I mean, I really would have. <laughs> I would have been speaking it so fully. And I can do little things now, golf-related things, and I can kind of pick up some dialogue. But, boy, if I just committed myself, I'd be a lot better speaker. Well, some of you, that's true for you in your spiritual life. You've been in and around church. You've been in and around spiritual things. You've been in and around things like this. But if you had just practiced 15 minutes a day, just, well, I can't read the Bible. I don't understand that stuff. And that, If you'd have just been just a little bit and you look back over your life, when I'd say Samuel, you'd know exactly who Samuel was. You'd be able to find that in your Bible. You, you would already be, well, let's just be honest. You'd be more like Jesus. You'd be more like Jesus. I wish I'd have started back then. But I'm really happy I started just incrementally daily reading the Word and exercising like Mick, those 30 years ago. I'm eternally grateful for that, and now it is my language. I can speak the language of the Bible. Can you speak the language of the Bible? You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 31 simply says this. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Can you really do something for the glory of God and yet not even know how to speak the language? That's my challenge to you today if you're interested in the Great Commission. You know, we need to exercise 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Catch this. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is of little profit. In other words, you go out and you go to the gym, you work out, and you do all that. I mean, that's valuable. I mean, that'll help you. If, if you're going to be a missionary or just, any, just be a person who just cares, you know, about other people. You want to be healthy. I mean, so that's wise. There's profit in that. But godliness, well, it's profitable for everything. I mean, your physical, that's good. Good for you. You get to the gym, that's great. You eat right, organic, blah, blah, blah. But godliness, becoming like Jesus, it's profitable for all things. Why? Because it holds promise not only for the present life, but also it holds promise for the life that we will live for eternity. You get in shape, you get all this stuff. I mean, you see these actors and they go on this crazy diets and the, then they, because they, they got to be on stage, they got to be on the camera, you know, without a shirt on or something like that. I'm talking about the men. And uh, they got to they be on the camera and then, you know, they, those abs and then, you know, that's a, but he, who can sustain that? You know, it's kind of like, I mean, it's just, it seems so hard. I mean, the physical, it's profitable, but boy, this spiritual this spiritual conform, this, this conforming to the image of Jesus, let me tell you something, that's, that's got some big profit, not only for this life, but for the life to come. So we have to exercise. It's important. But we need to eat right, too. Again, I'll, I'll quote Alan Redpath. Uh, Alan simply says this about uh, eating, uh, if I can find it. It's where you should always mark your spots. Um, Anyway, he supports what I'm saying. So uh, I don't know where it is. I think my thing, my thing fell out or something. He just basically says, look, you just got to eat the word. You just have to eat the word. If you want to be spiritually healthy, yeah, that's what I did. I took out my spot. Uh, if you want to be spiritually healthy, you just have to eat the word. Now, we, we quoted this a couple weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now, catch this. Therefore, putting aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, 
He's using these metaphors, just flowing through these metaphors, right? If you don't know that much about Jesus, if you're new to this, or even if you've been, but long for it, like a baby longs for that milk, long for it. Why? So that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now, don't just think going to heaven, not going to hell. Salvation is much more broad sweeping than that. It changes you from the inside out. That's what I need to be. I'm still being saved today. The Holy Spirit is transforming me, and the Holy Spirit uses the word as a primary change agent in my life. Now, there's a shift here. It's a very interesting shift here. Now, back to our premise as we close. Back to our premise. Is it, could it be true that we get to a certain point, and then now actually we begin to need to do what God tells us to do to continue our maturation process. Can we just sit around in our little holy huddles and go to Bible studies and never really become that much like Jesus or ever involved in the Great Commission and really change? I'm going to argue this even more vociferously next week, and I'm going to take you back to the Exodus and give you some, some of my thoughts that might actually help clear up some of these kind of enigmatic statements that Jesus made in the New Testament. I'll give you my take on it anyway. But I will tell you this, John 4 is a very interesting encounter. Remember, he was meeting with the woman at the well, and uh, his disciples came, and they said, he's got to be hungry. He hasn't eaten anything all day. And, they, and, then, and then he goes, oh, no, he says, I'm fine. Listen to this encounter. Meanwhile, uh, verse 31, John chapter 4, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, you got to eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And they're like, is there a subway around here somewhere? I mean, what is going on? I mean, food that we don't know about, we know everything. We travel with this guy. What are you talking about food we don't know about? So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat. Did he? And then Jesus said, my food, now catch this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps uh, so that they can rejoice together. So they can party together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered in to their labor. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is making it very clear that in terms of his spiritual food, yeah, he already knows the word. He is the word. But no, he, he was subjected to being a man, so I believe that he had to learn the word in a disciplined fashion just like we do. I believe that because Jesus was fully God, but he was fully man. And he was tempted, the Bible says, in the same ways we are and yet without sin. In other words, when the Holy Spirit put it on his heart, even as a 10, 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old, he was there learning the Word. He had already achieved a mastery of the Word as, as is evidenced by these encounters he has with the religious leaders. Now he's saying, now I have a food. There is a cosmic shift that happened in his life. He knew the Word. He was prepared. He knew the Word. But now he's got to accomplish the task. And so he says, now my food is not just the Word. But now my food is actually to do the will of him who sent me. So now the way that I get spiritually full of nutrition and I get energized is by actually accomplishing the purpose for which God has sent me. Again, I think this is support for my premise in this little series that we're doing. It's not called a series. This little thing that we're doing is that there's a certain point where you need to get involved didn't have to even be here at Church at the Red Door. You know, I think Church at the Red Door, I was having a conversation yesterday with one of our uh, executive team, and I'll just tell you, I, I, I think Church at the Red Door will accomplish things that will never accrue to our quote-unquote bottom line. Won't necessarily grow our church, won't necessarily fill our coffers, not that we're looking to fill them. Have I ever passed the plate? No. Uh, not that we don't have an opportunity for you to give. Trustees were like... He's doing. But my point is simply this. 
there's a certain point at which you just have to enter into that calling and that that may or may not accrue. I, I just think that the calling that's very unique on Church at the Red Door, given our transient nature and people in and out, and even people who consider this their church, some of them are only here 10 times a year, but this is their church. And they go out and accomplish some amazing things in the Great Commission. Phenomenal. See, we don't care how it, how it comes down. We enter into other people's labor, and we rejoice with the very people that may have sowed into your life, and now I got to... Maybe, or Paul or somebody else got to say, would you like to follow Jesus and baptize you? Well, we're rejoicing with the people who sowed into your life. Maybe a grandma who prayed for you for years, and then all of a sudden you find yourself here in God's sovereign plan. So the Great Commission is awesome, but because it is energizing, it's exciting, it's dynamic, and it feeds you get to a certain point you've been to enough bible studies you know I'm, I'm saying keep gathering and we can come together there's a certain point at, if it's just bible studies and you're not involved in the great commission you've been to enough bible studies let's go out and do something let's let's affect people who are downtrodden let's take it to the ends of the earth and again why simply this because he is worthy is he not is he not so that is the heartbeat of here. Now, what I'm going to attempt to do next week is I'm going to take you back into this Exodus template. Now, what does that mean? You know, Moses coming out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea and all that. And then there's some interplay between Jesus and talking to his disciples about take a sword, don't take a sword, take money, don't take a bag, all this kind of thing that I've just never very heard very well expounded and I've scoured the commentary. I have a thought about it that I'm going to share with you next week and it's going to fall right in line with your understanding of the Great Commission. So what did we learn today in summary? We learned that the Great Commission is founded, predicated, the whole foundation is the Great Commandment. Do you love God? You may be here this morning and say, I didn't even know I came in here. I didn't even know if really God existed. I don't know if I really believed. Well, you can... Maybe you have the faith to do that now. And we would invite you into a relationship with Jesus today. And then you got to love your neighbor at some point. Well, first you got to get the mask over your nose and mouth, and then you put it over your child in the airplane, right? You've heard me use that analogy. But I, I, I just put it over your nose and mouth first. There's a season in your life where you just need to learn the word. You need part of a community. Don't worry about the Great Commission quite yet. That doesn't mean you can't share your faith with somebody or whatever. Don't get me wrong. But just there's a season in your life. But some of you are ready to enter in to use your gift in whatever way that would be to help us or wherever it is you are, be a missional player in God's economy. Why? Because he's worthy. Because he's worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, your word is powerful. You say it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to pierce down into our innermost beings. It's able to divide our thoughts and the intentions of our own hearts. And sometimes maybe you've done that little work today. Somebody feels like, you know what, I've never really, it's always been about me and God. I've never really thought about other people and their being discipled or their being brought Lord, touch us, begin to speak to us. Help us understand your voice. Samuel had a starting point. He didn't know it was you. Teach us your voice and then help us follow it, not only as an individual but also as a church community. Lord, we worship you. This place is all about Jesus. It's about his glory and the fact that all authority has been given to him. We believe that here at Church at the Red Door. So it's because of that that we worship.